Good morning. Welcome. Um, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11? And uh, while you're doing that, I just want to, of course, remind us we know it's Memorial Day weekend, but this is an opportunity for us at least once a year to take a moment and really step back and thank God for those who have been willing to lay down their lives for the freedoms and the rights that we experience every day and so easily take for granted. Um, I would just encourage you that through the weekend when you're gathering with friends and family that you might just take a few minutes and just pray together and thank God not only for what he has done but also to hold up the families that have paid the ultimate price, who have sacrificed loved ones and family members in the service of this country. And uh, because it's so easy for us to get, you know, so caught up in the grace and the blessing that is uh, being part of this great nation that you can easily overlook the fact that it comes at a price. And I don't want to sound too cliche or hackneyed, but it's just something. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, you're a good minister of Jesus Christ if you bring the brethren into remembrance of these things. And he was talking about biblical foundations, of course, but I think it's also part of our responsibility of, as, this, as citizens of this great nation to remember that we are blessed beyond comparison. Having the opportunity to travel many places in the world over the years, it just is one of those kind of things, it's cliche to say it, but I remember so many times I get off the plane and want to kiss the ground. So thankful with all the faults and the weaknesses and the difficulties and challenges we face, our complaints about TSA lines and other things like that, um, we are amazingly blessed people. And that's to a no large degree, not only just the grace of God, but also the sacrifice that so many were willing to make. Can we just pause for a moment and just pray uh, for, our, for those who have served? Would you join with me, please? Father God, we just want to take a moment in this day not only to thank you for the kindnesses, the mercies that you've given to us, Lord, that uh, some might call it the luck of the lottery of, the, uh, of birth, Lord, but the reality is that you have placed us here and you've given us unparalleled opportunities, unparalleled in terms of the history of the world, not less just the time that we're living in. And as much as people criticize this nation, they are also clamoring to get into it any way they can because everybody recognizes it's the best place on the planet to live. But Father, we want to also remember the families of those who have surrendered their sons and daughters, who paid the ultimate price in order to provide us with the blessings and the security that we enjoy we think of not only those in the military, but the first responders and so many others, Lord, who daily put their lives on the line that ours don't have to be. And we thank you and we pray your grace upon them, your comfort, your blessing. We just ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we read Romans chapter 11 together? It is a long chapter. So if you don't want to stand, I get it. <laughs> but Paul begins by saying, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. He said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, 
and I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will be their fullness will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature... And contrary by, to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you do not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his calls are irrevocable. 
just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, I ask that as we consider this long chapter, that your Holy Spirit would just guide and direct us, lead us, Lord, open our understanding that we might benefit from these truths we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul makes a statement in chapter 11 that often surprises, maybe even confuses many first-time readers of Romans. In fact, it may confuse many multiple readers of Romans because in verse 28 he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they, speaking of the Jews, are enemies. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. What I think confuses some people is that we often assume that the great enemies of the early church was Rome, that they were the first persecutors, but in fact, that is not the case. In the very beginning, Rome could care less about this obscure Jewish sect, which the time didn't even have a settled name by which it could be identified. Loosely referred to as the Way or the followers of the Nazarene and things of that such, they were not viewed as being different or distinct from any other Jewish sect in the mind of the Romans. That's why we find when Jesus is brought to Pilate that Pilate's response to the Pharisees is you take him yourselves and judge him by your law. In other words, it's just saying, why would I concern myself with your cultural uh, peculiarities? You deal with your own stuff. Don't bother me. It's of no interest. Now, that would change within 10 years of the writing of this letter. At that time, Rome was nearly destroyed by a horrific fire and someone needed to be responsible. You know, it's not just in our day and age that we have to find a culprit. Back in those days, it was the same dynamic. Politically, Nero needed to be able to deflect any accusations, and there were many against himself, to somebody else who could take the fall without any, in his mind, apparent consequences. And so he blamed the Christians. From that point on, Christianity became, the term in Latin was religio illicita, or basically an illegal religion. And as a consequence, the church suffered at least 10 major you know, government-sponsored persecutions over the next 200 years. I mean, when you think about it, every 10 or 20 or 25 years, Rome would launch another crusade to wipe out Christianity. But at the time of the writing of this letter, Christianity was still viewed as just another obscure, albeit often troublesome Jewish sect. But the Jews didn't see it that way. To them, Christianity was dangerous and a pernicious heresy that threatened the very foundations of the Jewish faith and of the nation simply because it had such a 
powerful appeal from the very beginning. In fact, this had previously been the view even of the apostle himself, as we all know. Before his own conversion, he admits, as he said to the Galatians, that he formally persecuted the church and that the faith he once tried to destroy Yet overnight, this chief persecutor becomes its chief promoter, and with it, he becomes the chief object of Jewish hatred, so that later on, we read, as he's in Jerusalem in Acts 21, they cry out, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place, speaking of the temple. Even today, when you talk with certain Orthodox Jews that are transparent enough to tell you what they think, it is not uncommon for them to say, as one said to me, Christianity was fine until Paul got a hold of it. I thought it was an interesting statement, until Paul got a hold of it. (laughs) You see, what Paul did was he clarified what we believe Jesus was teaching anyway, but it came to be referred to as the gospel of grace. And this gospel of grace, as we've seen, is a central theme of this great letter of Romans that we've been studying. And it continues to be between not only the Jews, but all religious groups, the chief point of contention. Christianity is unique in this regard. It is the only religion that teaches salvation by grace and grace alone. Every other religious system teaches salvation based upon a combination of rituals or a combination of works, something that the doer needs to do in order to ensure that he or she gets admission into the heavenly aisles. Christianity says it has nothing to do with you other than to believe the very promise that God has made to you through Jesus. If Paul had simply required Gentile converts to be circumcised, Keep the law, even in the vaguest sense, keep the law. There would have been no issue. In fact, he himself said as much to the Galatians in Galatians 5.11. He says, brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, which is basically the price of admission into Judaism, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. What was the offense of the cross? The offense of the cross is that I have nothing to offer God. As Paul says at the end of this message, what does does any man have that he can give to God? What do you possess that God wants? Now, I admit, if you listen to certain television preachers, you get the impression that God wants something and desperately needs it and may, in fact, go out of business if not bankrupt if you don't send in your love gift today. It's troubling to me because that's such a false doctrine, such a false teaching. God doesn't need anything. If there's a need, we have a need to give, but God doesn't have a need to receive. And so Paul says, if I, if I could just tell people, do X, Y, Z, then the offense of the message goes away automatically. But because he taught, as we read back in chapter 10 last week, because he taught that there is no difference, he said, between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In that simple statement, Paul removes the, 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 the 
special status that the Jews felt they possessed with God. The Judaism was no longer a closed club, open only to an exclusive membership. But rather, by grace, it was open and available to any and all who would believe, regardless of their past, regardless of the present, and regardless of anything we might expect or anticipate with regards to the future. Well, this Jewish-Gentile debate quickly led to a great deal of strife, not only within Rome, but within the churches themselves. The churches in Rome were a combination, if you will. There were Jewish congregations, and there were Gentile congregations, and we assume that there may have been blending within those congregations as well. And there's something perniciously about the human nature that always tries to find that one thing that puts us a step above someone else. Now, I won't get too particular, but I'm just saying it's there, it's in you. You see it in yourself. That little thing that you think kind of sets you apart and makes you more favorable, oftentimes to other people, but many times even to God himself, that God looks at me because I don't have a tattoo. Or... In 10 years, it'll be God looks at me because I do have a tattoo. It's just really hard to know anymore. But we began to create these little kind of dynamics in our own mind, and this was a, a problem. In fact, it rose to such a serious conflict that the previous emperor, the one before Nero, a man by the name of Claudius, expelled the Jews, all of the Jews, which would have included Christians, we find out, from Acts 18. He excluded everyone that was considered a Jew from Rome. He made them leave the city. In fact, it says in Acts 18 too, he says, Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And so we're told that's why Aquila and Priscilla are in Ephesus where Paul meets them. The historian Suetonius, who uh, writing in, in his classic work, The Twelve Caesars, said of that time, he says, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, we believe he's referring to Jesus Christ, Claudius expelled them. You see, what Paul was responding to in chapters 9 through 11 was how were the Gentile believers supposed to react to Jewish antagonism? We find historically that the earliest roots of what we know today is the modern anti-Semiticism, this anti-Jewishness that it found its roots in the church of Rome and was proliferated there for some extensive period of time. And it's that because in Rome it became the most intense. I personally believe that in these chapters which Paul was trying to create a theological foundation for that not happening. To really address this tendency that we have by nature to kind of divide people based upon arbitrary things that we claim have some kind of foundational reality. Because when he said, whether you're Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference in the eyes of God, yet sometimes in the eyes of men, we still allow it to make a difference. We have a tendency to discount and even to write off certain people or groups of people because they're just not like us. Well, Paul began by explaining God's past relationship with Israel in this chapter. 
And it had been a problematic relationship. We know well about their disobedience historically. Read the Old Testament. You don't find a, a glowing letter of report where we're where God is again and again praising the Jews, but rather we find him reproving and rebuking over and over again because they are a disobedient people. He called them a stiff-necked and rebellious people. Stiff-necked implies the idea of a, a horse that will not respond to the rider's reins or direction. He just It's kind of like being a mule. He just decides what he wants to do, and that's where he's going. And he said, you're like that. You're an obstinate people, he called them. You're an obdurate people. You're a people who will not yield to me. But despite this fact, God had revealed himself to them more than any other people that had ever existed on the planet. And yet what's tragic is they had missed the most important point that from the very beginning it was always about grace. From the very beginning, from the very beginning of sin in chapter 3 of Genesis, it is God who seeks out the man who is hiding. It is God who covers their nakedness. It is God who introduces the act of sacrifice in atonement for their sins. It is all of God seeking to draw them back into relationship with himself. We don't see Adam and Eve taking any useful initiative. Oh, I mean, they did some things. They took fig leaves and they made garments for themselves. You couldn't have picked a worse choice. I mean, not only do they not endure, they're not, you know, it doesn't last a very long time. But I don't know if you've ever picked figs. I have. And their leaves have little fibers in them that get in your skin like fiberglass and they make you itch like crazy. And when you pick the fruit, this little white foam comes out and if you get it on your bare hands, it stains your fingers black. And I'm picturing Adam and Eve robing themselves in these things. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's like most sin. When you commit it, you become obvious that you have sinned by your response. And I can just see them standing there scratching themselves, pulling it off and seeing the black stains all over themselves. That's what human effort does. When man seeks to eliminate his own sin, he makes his sin more obvious. There is kind of a spiritual awkwardness that manifests itself when there is sin in our life. From the very beginning, God made it clear, as he told us back in chapter 9, that salvation depended on God's mercy by faith and not by works. And yet, they preferred deception to truth. Now, I know that you don't consider yourself to be of that ilk, but sometimes you and I are. Sometimes we prefer deception to truth. In fact, it's interesting. I was just reading an article today about what they called financial infidelity. And I thought, financial infidelity? And they said, it's where husbands and wives don't tell the truth about their financial situations. And then they said, well, it can be something as small as a purchase that you haven't shared with your partner. It can be something like a bank account or something else or some other financial issue like a serious debt or as friends of mine one time discovered after they married that the husband hadn't paid his taxes in four years. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I thought it was interesting because it's a financial infidelity. In other words, I would rather not tell you the truth because I don't want the consequences of truth. And that's, that's kind of a, where Israel was at. I mean, they basically were so wed to their identity that they didn't want to give it up. They preferred deception to truth. The past deception is what led them to their present rejection of the gospel as Paul is speaking of it here. They refused to accept the fact, as he said in chapter 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law. That word end in the original is fascinating because it literally means a termination point at which a thing ceases to be. It says that by which a thing is finished, it is closed, it is completed, it no longer has force. So that in the same way that you, when you finish reading a book and you come to the end, you know that the book is over. You can never go back and be excited or surprised by what's in it ever again. And he says you have to understand that when Christ died, he became the end of the law. But they had become so invested in their Judaism as both an identity and as a lifestyle, they refused to consider any other possibilities. It meant that they had to release the thing that they were clinging to for their identity in order to find who they truly were. Now, this may sound strange, but a few years back, I was invited for a series of years to speak at a missionary conference in Las Vegas. I know it sounds terrible, but the church was outside the city, and it was cool, but and I didn't have to, didn't have to live inside of Sodom and Gomorrah while I was there. But <laughs> what I found really fascinating is I was getting off the plane. I mean, the first time I flew in there, and I got off the plane, and I'm going down the escalator to baggage claim, and I noticed that everybody coming up the escalator was very different from everybody going down. The people going down were all giddy and laughing, excited. The people who were coming up were basically looked like people who were going to their own postmortem. They, they looked dead. I mean, they were the most unhappy people that I'd, I'd ever encountered. But that wasn't what really caught my attention. What caught my attention as I got on the, the tram to go to the baggage claim were the Elvis impersonators. I had never seen an Elvis impersonator. Now, this particular guy was only about 5'2", so I thought right away I've got a problem. But nonetheless, I, I, don't, know how you, <laughs> I don't know how you impersonate Elvis from that low level, but... Bottom line was, I thought to myself, why would somebody do this? I mean, what? I mean, this wasn't like he was on stage or performing. This was his regular MO, and I found that the city had lots of these people. This was their, they're so much not in love with who they are that they walk around with an adopted identity of a dead rock singer. Well, that's the best way I can illustrate what the Jews were trying to do. So unable to embrace the truth about themselves as being sinners without hope, without salvation, without any real redemption. So lost in their sin that they decided to choose to find another identity in the law. And they define themselves not to, the, to the nth degree so that even to this day they are identifiable by the costume they wear, by the way that they order and organize their life in every detail. And yet that becomes their righteousness. 
And don't think they're exclusive in this because if we look closely at ourselves, we can find ourselves sometimes doing the same thing. Even as followers of Jesus, we can begin to look around the environment and begin to conform ourselves to everybody around us and make sure that we fit in and over time begin to think this is our righteousness. I mean, I know I'm saved because not only do I have a Bible with a black leather cover, but I have my initials embossed on it. Bang. (laughs) Settle that argument. (laughs) I mean... Who but a redeemed child of God would spend that kind of money on a Bible? <laughs> this thing cost me 120 bucks. Five dollars to have my name put on it. Bam! <laughs> you know, it's, I'm being silly, but friends, we can do this. It doesn't only take a matter of time before we decide what we look like, what's acceptable in appearance, and a thousand other things and begin to think that that actually is the validation of who we are. When at the end of the day is, I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. Nothing more. So that Paul would say to the Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God. Now why do I emphasize this? Because I'm actually got a plan and I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> so that Paul plaintively ends chapter 10 by saying to us in verse 21, concerning Israel, God says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. I've held my hand out to you all day long and you won't come to me because to come to me you have to let go of something else. Reminds me of a missionary video I saw as a very young Christian. In fact, it wasn't called a video then, it was called a movie because this was pre-video. It was actually almost pre-cassette. But I remember watching this, this 16, real, 16 millimeter real movie and it talked about this missionary going into this uh, South, Afri- South American uh, village and because he was the guest of honor, they went out and hunted a monkey and it showed him going out and shooting the monkey out of the tree and all that sort of stuff and then eating the monkey. And, and he, because he was a guest of honor, they gave him the head I mean, yes, I will never complain about head cheese ever again. But anyway, but what was really interesting, he said their preferred way of capturing monkeys wasn't to shoot them out of trees. It was to take a coconut shell to cut a hole in the top of it just large enough for the monkey to put his hand in it. And they would drop a piece of meat because, you know, monkeys, apes are carnivorous. They, they like to eat flesh as well. And the monkey would see that and he would run up and he'd put his fist in it and grab the meat But when he did, making his hand into a fist, now it was too large to remove through the hole. And then they would just come up and catch him because he had tried to climb the tree and he couldn't because he had a coconut clutched clutched to his fist. And it was a powerful metaphor for me as I watched this because it really said, what is it that you are clutching to, that you're grasping in your life that hinders you from being really able to know the freedom that is yours in Christ? For the Jews, you know what it was? It was being moral. No, I'm not saying to be immoral. But they were so grasping after their legalism, it became so defining to them by what they did and did not do. As Garrison Keillor said, growing up in the Luther League, he said, I didn't learn how to tie knots. I learned the shout knots. 
But you have begun to define everything by this set of rules instead of defining it by a relationship. If Israel had embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Paul goes on to tell us, that God, it would have really kind of invalidated the very thing that God was doing. In fact, Paul goes on to say that God's plan from the very beginning was for this to happen. But when we look at people like Israel, normally our thought pattern is, well, this would be basically the end of the story. They've resisted the gospel. They've rejected the gospel. End of story. They have this historical problem. And so we normally would assume that the future is going to look just like their past. And normally what we do is we just kind of write those people off. Have you ever written anybody off because of the past? Or where they're at in the present? Hmm? I know I have. In fact, we can even quote Jesus to fortify our position by saying things. Matthew 10, 14, Jesus said, If anyone will not listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. He goes on to say, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. So that when we look at people who seem to be rejecting and objecting to what we believe, it is really easy just simply to write them off. I've shared many times with my father. I prayed and shared with my dad for 15 years, and he repeatedly rejected the gospel and argued with me vociferously over it and told me he didn't believe it and on and on and on. And it was only when I came to a point saying, I'm done praying for him. I'm done talking to him. Uh, You know, I, I give up, and I was throwing my little tizzy fit. Then he asked Jesus into his heart without permission. (laughs) He didn't clear it with me. He didn't even notify me. And so especially when we look at people like the Jews and say, look at the opportunities that God had given them. But you see, every life has three things. Every life has a past. Every life has a present. And every life has a future. Which is why Paul addresses the question, last of all, of Israel's future. Yes, in the past they had resisted God and disobeyed him. Yes, in the present they were rejecting the gospel. But Paul says, but let's talk about God's future plan for them. That's why he begins by saying in verses 1 and 2, did God reject his people? He said, by no means. God did not reject his people. In verse 11, he said, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all, he says. In fact, in verse 23, he says, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. He doesn't say they're able to reattach themselves to the vine. He says God will reattach them. It's something that God will do if they stop persisting. And that's why in verse 26 he says, all Israel will be saved. I mean, that's an amazing statement. All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as the election, that is the selection of God is concerned, they are loved on account of Abraham, the patriarchs. And then he says, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. In fact, Paul goes on to explain that God had this plan from the very beginning. 
In verses 23 through 27, he says, Israel has experienced hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. What essentially Paul is telling us is that if Israel had embraced Jesus when he came the first time, if they had embraced him as their Lord and Savior, the plan of God would have been fulfilled. There would have been no crucifixion, ergo, no atonement for our sins. That their rejection of Christ had to happen in order for us to be saved. But he tells us, but the day is coming when many of those who have previously resisted and rejected the gospel, he said, they will actually be saved. And what he begins to address us with is really kind of this, this nature of the grace of God. In fact, as I was thinking about it, there were, were four things that, I, I, that stood out to me about God's grace. The first one is that grace is invaluable. You can't put a price on it. There, there's nothing that you can give in exchange for the grace of God. I mean, most of us understand that, but we, at the same time as we understand it, we also struggle with it because we do not live in a grace-based world. We have a grace-based redemption, but we do not live in a grace-based world. We live in a world as, what have you done for me lately? And everything's kind of like that. Even your most intimate relationships are based upon this idea that there's a reciprocation that's going to take place. That's why we get offended by people doing or not doing things. That's why we feel cheated or treated unfairly or we get angry. I get amazed at seeing people getting furious because their luggage got lost in a flight as if that poor young lady behind the counter has any control over this. But it's almost like it's personal. How could they do that to me? No, it's, it's, there's, no there's no price tag. There's nothing you can give in exchange. It is beyond any kind of measurable value. That secondly, it is irreplaceable. What can a man, Jesus said, give in exchange for his soul? There is no other option for heaven. And how we need to, to be clear on this. There is no other option for heaven. There is no other pathway. There is no other Savior. There is no another Lord. There's no other options available except to believe on the gift that God has given to us. But thirdly, it is irrevocable. Irrevocable. That's an interesting statement. That Jesus said in, in Revelation 3, 5, that if your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, it can't be blotted out. That God gives you eternal life, it's eternal. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon put it so simply many years ago. He says, if eternal life is to be eternal, then it has to be eternal. <laughs> I mean, okay, I think I get the linguistics here. I give you this thing. It's not something I give to you and that I take it away. So that even in this passage where he talks about the Jews being cut off, he's not talking about cut off for salvation. He's talking about cut off from that place of special blessing that Israel enjoyed for such a long period of time. A grace that came from national Israel and passed to the church. But God has sealed me, Paul said, in his beloved and that fourthly, he says, it's incomprehensible. 
It's invaluable, it's irreplaceable, it's irrevocable, incomprehensible. And I think this may be part of the most important things for us to understand because when he says at the end of the chapter, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, it's an acknowledgement of my own ignorance. That God, I don't really understand your ways. So that when we pray saying, God, just show me your will. God's answer in his word is, my will is that you'd separate your lives to follow me. Wherever that leads. But if you're going to demand me to tell me, to tell you what you're going to be doing next week. Or even this afternoon. Sorry. Because my ways are beyond tracing out. So that when Jesus said, follow me, he says, I am a light to your feet, a lamp to your path. Uh, that, that's what I am. I, I am not this spotlight that shines into the future so that when somebody comes up to you and says, thus saith the Lord, God has told me what the rest of your life is going to be like. They're probably making it up. Because that's part of the mystery. That's part of the wonder of the relationship. But Paul leaves us with some therefores at the end of this. Therefore, I mean, it's kind of like in light of all this stuff, in conclusion, what can we conclude? The kind of the, what is the takeaway for me? Well, the first thing he says is, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. I don't want you, to, in other words, to be uninformed. The word agnaeo, where we get our name agnostic, is just simply not to understand these things. I want you to understand that even though the Jews now have become your enemy, or whoever you want to put in there as your enemy, or your opponent, or the hurtful person in your life, or the betrayer, or whatever it is, that even though they're there, I don't want you to be ignorant of this reality that God has allowed this in your life for a purpose. I don't want you to ignore that. I don't want you to miss that reality. That your life isn't just a, a, a spring that has been detached and is flying off randomly in all sorts of different areas. It's not like a spool of fishing line that suddenly has become tangled beyond the hope of ever uh, putting it back together in any kind of semblance of order or purpose. No, God says, I have a plan. I have a purpose. I have something that I'm doing in and through your life. And, it, and if you, the more time you spend focusing upon other people and situations and blaming it on the government or your spouse or your kids or the economy or your boss or the list goes on and on and on. No matter who the target is, you are missing the target. You're completely getting it wrong because I am at work in your life through your circumstances. I don't want you to miss that point, Paul says. Because what would happen is when they started blaming the Jews and making the Jews their enemy, or later on they're blaming Nero and they're making Nero their enemy, what they're failing to recognize is none of these things could touch their life except through God's allowance. And at first that may be disappointing because you've lost the, the ability to rationalize your anger and frustration, but then you come to find out, no, this is really the, the, the wonderful liberty of Christ that my life is not the consequences of random circumstances, but it is based upon the plan of God. 
So that when he says of Israel, the purpose of them rejecting me, the reason that I hardened them, I put a, a spirit of stupor, he says, over their eyes. That they became darkened in their understanding. Why did I allow that to happen? Because by their rejecting of the gospel, it opened the gospel to you. And as they see the blessing of the gospel come upon you, it will provoke them to envy, to want to know. Yeah, not all will believe, but he says not all are Israel because only those who live by faith. But God, in short, saying, and and it does boggle my mind when I try to follow the, the breadcrumbs of this, you know, but the fact is God saying, I've got this. I want you to rest in the fact that I've, I've got this. That secondly, he says, do not be arrogant. Verse 25, he says, so that you may not be conceited. The word conceited means to be hyperinflated with your own self-worth. I don't want you to be arrogant. Peterson put it this way. He said, it would be easy to misinterpret what's going on and arrogantly assume that you're royalty and they're just rabble. It's easy to misinterpret what is going on. It's easy for me to look at any situation and misinterpret what's going on. It's easy for me to look at a situation that I don't enjoy and don't want in my life and become arrogant because what is arrogant? It's me looking at a situation and putting my views, my will, my opinions before God or anybody else's. <laughs> Never forget one Sunday morning driving home from church and I must have looked pretty morose. My wife can read all of my moods. It's funny how women learn to do that. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, oh, you know, I felt like I didn't really deliver that message very well. I just felt like I could have done such a better job. I just, it's almost like the whole time I was talking, I felt like I was trying to get to a point, but I never quite got there. And I just feel kind of frustrated. And, and, and so when I finished sharing my, my perspective, she said, you know what your problem is? Right away I knew I didn't want the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it to be my problem. But, you know, I'm, I'm a guy, I can take it. And so I very graciously said, what? <laughs> she said, you think it's about you. Don't you think God can minister his people even if your message wasn't that good? Now you just told me my message wasn't that good. <laughs> I use that by way of illustration because isn't that how we are? Sometimes I don't want the truth. I don't want to hear that, that frank, honest evaluation from man or God. But to when God says, do you know what your real problem is? No, I don't want to know what it is. I want to pretend it's this. <laughs> because there I can maintain my own arrogance. He says, don't be arrogant. He says, in fact, he says, but be afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of my anger. Afraid of my arrogance. Be afraid of that. And this morning as I was thinking about this message, I added one thing. It's not going to show up on the PowerPoint because I forgot to mention it this morning to the guys. 
when things go wrong with you know the presentation or with the sound and stuff, just understand that 99% of the time it's my fault. <laughs> Everybody always looks at the guys back there and go, what are you doing? <laughs> no, it's usually something stupid I've done. But it was simply this. Don't be ignorant, don't be arrogant, and don't write anybody off. Don't write anybody off. Why do I say that? Well, 47 years ago today, this day, I bent the knee and asked Jesus into my heart. This is my 47th spiritual birthday. And nobody but nobody was betting on that happening. <laughs> there was nothing about my life that was betting on that happening. And I'll never forget when I went to my 10-year, my 20-year high school reunion, which was an odd thing, and they asked people to come up and talk about what they're doing. So I got up and said, well, I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and I'm serving the Lord, and blah, blah, blah. And it was fun watching the expressions on people's face. <laughs> I, had, I had one inebriated associate come up to me and go, what? Run that by me again. <laughs> you know, and I know that I, a lot of people wrote me off. I know that I have written a lot of people off. And God has confounded me because if God from before time and eternity has written your name or their name in the Lamb's book of life, he foreknows them. So he, because he knows what their decision is going to be, he puts their name in it in advance. Just waiting for them to show up at the party. Don't write anybody off. Don't include, include anybody. Consider anybody to be on the pale or beyond the reach of God. They're always available. And I know that every one of us, if we live long enough, we have those people that we have prayed and we have waited and we've labored over and we've travailed over and we've wondered about. And it's amazing how God can work. Just one real quick story. Just recently, my wife and I were down in Monterey visiting my brother. and We'd spend a couple nights there. I was out in the front loading the car to go visit some more relatives. And... Uh, we had been praying for six months for a niece that she would come to Jesus. And as I'm loading the trunk of the car, suddenly this car pulls up behind me and the same niece gets out of the car and she says, I was just driving by and I saw you loading your car. Find out she lives two blocks up the street from my brother. Just driving by and I, got, I thought, hey, that's my Uncle Ken, Kenny. And we invited them over, and it just the whole dynamic was the whole opportunity to sit together and talk to them. It was amazing how God just set this thing up. Now, as far as I know, they still haven't bent the knee to Jesus, but I believe it's coming. I mean, what is the chances? What are the odds of something like that happening? You see, God is continually trying to illustrate in your life that he is moving and working. Don't stop praying. Don't stop ministering. Don't stop loving. Don't stop caring. Don't stop believing God for that boss or that partner or that enemy that God would touch and work and move in their life. Don't write them off. 
don't write them off. I believe the most egregious sin that a Christian can commit is being unwilling to forgive because the whole basis of the Christian life is God forgave you. (laughs) And he says, if you can't forgive, you will not be forgiven. The whole basis of the Christian life is forgiving those that we have issues with. Not writing them off, but praying for them and praying that God would bless them and pray that God would love them. I discovered this amazing thing about people that we become offended by. Even the people who really don't like you, I know that you probably don't have anybody who really dislikes you. <laughs> I know I'm meddling now. But I figured out, God, you said pray for those who despitefully use you, love your enemies. God, I pray that you would bless them. You would bless them beyond measure, that they would experience your presence, your power, your goodness, your kindness. Make them rich, make them healthy, make them wise, make them successful. Just overwhelm them because you know what I've discovered in my life? When God's goodness is just flowing over me, I can't be unhappy. I can't be angry. God bless them so much that they would be free just like I want to be free. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to hear your heart, understand your ways, and to walk in them. And to pray slowly enough so that Luke and Jessica can actually get out here in a timely manner. (laughs) Father, we, we are a needy people in our lives. We are very needy. And we need most of all, I think, in this moment to know God that you are the author and the finisher of our faith that our life is not a conjunction of of, uh, disconnected events but that God there's a plan and there's a path and there's a purpose behind every single moment and experience in our life and you are inviting us to rest in that knowledge not to be ignorant of that fact but to rest in it and to trust in it and to believe that you got this that we don't have to machinate and strategize and to bend and twist and make things happen. God, you've got this. And that you're going to glorify yourself through all of the things that we're experiencing. I pray, God, that we could trust you with this in Jesus' holy name.